Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. yesterday with a listener um, via email that provokes me to be sure everybody knows and understands that um, we're nowhere near the end of this, uh, that restarting the American economy is is a monstrous trade-off. Um, it, we absolutely need to come to the understanding that uh, short of therapeutic treatments for COVID-19, short of a, a vaccine for this, um, for this virus, we are facing wave after wave until the entirety of the global population is exposed in such a way that they either produce antibodies on their own or succumb to the virus. Um, succumb is a nice way of saying, I mean, it's a nice use of euphemism for death. Um, we, we, I mean, if you are not like sober to this reality, um, now's the time to uh, to become aware of this. So when we talk about a second wave, um, we talk about the reality that um, this is not going to end quickly. Um, I think we need to recognize that researchers around the world are reporting several different mutating strains of the virus. It's not clear whether or not a person who has been infected and has recovered um, can be reinfected. And if so, if they would be um, communicable again, if they would be transmitting the virus again. We also have to anticipate waves or cycles of the virus in the same way that we anticipate seasonal colds, by the way, many of which are coronaviruses. We just happen to already have immunities to fight those off. So COVID-19 um, is, is new. We don't have any resistance to it. No one does. If you've ever traveled internationally to a developing country, then you know that you have to be vaccinated in, av- in advance against diseases that are prevalent in other parts of the world that are not prevalent where you live because you don't have any natural immunities to those diseases. COVID-19 actually migrated around the globe and no one anywhere has a resistance to it. So until we develop resistance, either through antibodies, which means we're exposed and we have the virus and then our bodies, immune systems are strong enough to, um, to fight it off and then we have these antibodies or receive uh, those antibodies through a vaccination, which, by the way, currently does not exist. Yes, there are hundreds of trials globally, more than 70 here, right here in the United States. But one does not yet exist. Um, we are going to continue to see people die, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And Christians have a perspective on death. We also um, recognize that not only is death the enemy, but death is the enemy that has been overcome by Jesus Christ. And so there has never been a more urgent time for evangelism. Never, never in the course of our lifetime has there ever been a more urgent need for evangelism. Um, Because many, many millions of people are going to succumb, maybe not in this first wave of the coronavirus, but over the course of time, short of um, therapeutic treatments that are distributed fairly quickly. And they're not going to necessarily die of the virus, but in places around the world, people are going to starve to death. So that's going to be the monstrous 
mathematical trade-off that um, economists and military people and others on the front lines around the world, that's the monstrous math that's now being done behind the scenes. When do we reopen economies recognizing that people are going to be exposed to the virus, recognizing that that means that people are going to die, um, because we also can't afford the social cost of not reopening the economy, because the global collapse that is caused um, in cascading waves of not only poverty, but starvation and death around the globe is something that we just can't, we literally can't live with. That's the conversation that is being had among um, the people doing the math behind the scenes. And you and I as Christians need to not only be praying about that, we need to be recognizing that we are people who are committed to life and human flourishing, even in the midst of a culture that is often described as a culture of death. And you and I have to ask ourselves, does every life actually matter? Does every life matter equally? Am I actually pro-life when it comes to some issues, but maybe not this issue? Um, Am I comfortable with the language of calling the herd? Because if I am, I am Darwinian in my thinking. I am not thinking with the mind of Christ adapted to um, the issues of my day. So when we talk about cultivating the mind of Christ on the issues of the day and walking the gospel out in the day and time in which we live, this is our time. You and I have been called forth as ambassadors of Jesus Christ for such a time as this, this, this is going to be our defining issue uh, for our generation and our witness in the world. All right. So with that, we're going to move to a conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com because there are uh, there are lots of really positive things going on in terms of uh, of terms of businesses, and uh, the Senate has passed another aid package. We're going to talk about all of that up next. Joining me again today, Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Welcome back, sir. Hey, it's good to be back. How are you doing? Well, I'm it is well with my soul, although my spirit is a little troubled. <laughs> Considerably ruffled in spirit, right? <laughs> a little ruffled in spirit. It's well yeah. with my soul, but I am ruffled in spirit. Yeah, that's a line from uh, Anne of Green Gables. I don't know if you remember that movie. Uh, oh, but I she do was remember asked that how- movie. But she was asked how she was doing one time, and she said, uh, I'm well in spirit, but considerably ruffled in in um, whatever, soul or something like that. So Yeah, no, I like it. All right, I'm going to look that up. Yeah. All right, quoting yep. Anne of Green Gables today uh, with Bill English here on Mornings with Carmen. Um, what's going on in business? I, I Wow, there's so much we could talk about. I don't even quite I know. know which direction to go. <laughs> so let's, um, let's, let's uh, where do you want to start? Let's start with small businesses. Small businesses are really taking it on the chin right now. Uh, the the the, uh, the the initial 350 billion that was designed to uh, get passed out to the small businesses in terms of the payroll protection program uh, got depleted, as we all knew it would, and uh, they are still trying to get another bill passed to get more money over to the Treasury and the SBA so that more money can flow to the small businesses. In the meantime. Uh, this thing is killing small businesses. I, I, uh, I think that there's going to be uh, a number of bankruptcies in the next 90 to 180 days as a result of COVID, and I'm just wondering if Congress isn't going to do something more to forestall 
those bankruptcies. But um, they're, they're, they're not doing well. Uh, I've talked to a number of small business owners, and most of them remain optimistic, but you can hear the strain and the stress in their voice. Uh, you can just you can see it on their faces when we zoom with them. You, you you can just tell that this is really taking a bite out of their energy and their cycles. So we talked to a small business owner yesterday. We were actually talking about her talking with her about her book, Eat Pie Love. Um, but I, at at some point, it just you know I just felt led to offer to pray for her, and it just the offer reduced her to tears. Like people are just right on the edge. If they're yeah. small business owners now, the questions that they're asking are just questions they never thought that they would confront. And we're really talking here about people's dreams. So yes. could you just speak to that? I can, yeah. The The story of Hannah, when, when I think about dreams, I usually go back to 1 Samuel 1 with Hannah. And Hannah had a dream of being a mother, and, and she was barren, and she couldn't conceive. And uh, you have this, her, her literally pouring her heart out to God at the temple entrance and Eli coming up and saying, are you drunk woman? And she says, no, I'm just pouring my heart out to God. I really want a son. And then Eli, of course, says, you know, you're going to have a son by this time next year. And she does. And who is her son turn out to be? turns out to be Samuel, one of the greatest prophets that we've ever had and who uh, two Old Testament books are named after. Uh, what drives business owners are their dreams. The business owners can see something that doesn't exist and they can see it in the future and they have the drive and the passion and oftentimes the skills and the resources to go after that dream and to really make it happen. And when their dream is taken from them, as COVID is doing for uh, tens of thousands of small business owners, they experience a loss of hope, a loss of dignity, a loss of purpose, so forth and so on. It's really a very, very difficult place to be when your identity, your hope, your purpose is taken away from you. And so what, what business owners, especially Christian business owners, are wrestling with are two things. Number one, how do you hold on to that dream? And number two, how do you hold it with an open hand so that if God wants to change your dream or take it from you, now is the time that it's probably going to happen? Very tough place to be uh, for a lot of business owners. So um, after the break, Bill, I want to pivot and have a conversation about big business. We've been hearing these reports that some businesses are returning their government money. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. And then um, just want you to just speak to the uh, the conversation related to, you know, big and bigger businesses. So I'm talking sure. with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Um, so, Bill, you know, I was kind of celebrating yesterday Shake Shack's returning of their uh, of their ten million dollar loan. Um, yeah, with I think they were, you know, they were basically saying, "Hey, if we return this, then others could have access to um, to this money." First of all, does that work that way? And then, what's sort of your take on what's going on right now with big business? You know, there's always such a um, such an animosity 
that has been developed in our country for the rich and for the big businesses. And yet we need them in a, in a desperate way because uh, big businesses offer us all kinds of efficiencies and economies of scales that uh, sometimes small business just can't give us. Look, uh, my, my take on it, if Shake Shack or uh, Ruth's Chris or the others want to give back the $10 million, that's fine. They just repay the loan. They just repay it early, and, and, it, and it's done. Uh, but they shouldn't be shamed into taking it back because they followed the rules that Congress set out. Presumably, Congress thought this through. Now, I realize a lot of people are smirking right now, but presumably Congress thought this whole stimulus package through and that they knew there would be situations like this and that they were okay with this. If they didn't, then shame on them. And so uh, if, if they want to give it back, great, but don't be shamed into giving it back. And also, let's remember, this is not a zero-sum game. It's not like if Shake Shack keeps the $10 million, another small business isn't going to get that $10 million. And the reason we know it's not a zero-sum game is because of what the feds have said in interviews on 60 Minutes and other places. They have made it abundantly clear that there's an infinite amount of money that they are going to pump into this economy to keep it going. So just like we're getting another stimulus package now, which has another, I don't know, 200 and $350 however many it is, uh, coming our way, if that isn't going to be enough, Congress is going to pass a third and a fourth and a fifth stimulus package. They're going to keep the money flowing. So it's not a zero-sum game. And uh, I think that we should treat all businesses equally, honestly. They all employ people of very diverse demographics. Every business employs um, white people, black people, gays, lesbians, straights, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your orientation is, most businesses, if not all businesses, or almost all, employ across a wide swath of demographics. And so I don't think we should be singling out or saying uh, that, that minority-owned businesses are more important than other businesses and that kind of thing. All businesses should be treated equally. Absolutely. Um, all right. So um, uh, we have a listener who is asking, say, I haven't even read it yet, so here we go. This is spontaneous right off the text line. All right. Carmen, okay. good morning. Please ask Bill, do all these aid packages need to be paid back? Are they actually loans? Um Oh, and then uh, maybe we should have a Jewish year of Jubilee. Oh, were all the debts gift forgiven? I mean, I love that, but ultimately the, the, the debt belongs to somebody. It does, and, and eventually the debts would have to get priced into how the loans were created in the first place. I think that was when you start the program, when you start off with the year of Jubilee, it's easier to price that year of Jubilee into how you, how you lend if you're the lender. Uh, to do that now, I think, would be disastrous to our economy. Now, to answer the first part of her question, uh, some uh, a good portion of this money is is going to end up being forgiven, and it's not going to be paid back. And it's just basically free cash that's flowing uh, to these businesses in order to keep them afloat. So uh, the parts that need to be paid back, it depends on if it's an idle loan, an economic injury disaster loan, or if it's a, a PPP, uh, a, the, the paycheck loan. Uh, they have different uh, interest rates and different amortization schedules, but parts of them, and you know, those kinds of loans will have to be paid back, but other parts are, are just, it's just free money. It's free money. It's like somebody walked into your business, wrote a million dollar check and said, nah, you don't got to pay me back and I don't want any equity for it. You know, that's basically what it is. 
Okay, and as soon as people hear you say that, then they're going to recognize that as uh, as American taxpayers, eventually, eventually, we owe this. Everything's getting borrowed. Look, the Fed's balance sheet, the Federal Re- the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet in the last six weeks has gone up over $2 trillion. And they, they have created $2 trillion of money, and that's all borrowed. All of it is borrowed. And, you know... And like, like I said last week, and I was kind of cavalier, or a few weeks ago, maybe I was too cavalier about this, but we already got $24 trillion of debt. They're going to add another $2 trillion to this in just a matter of a few weeks. At some point, it begins to not matter as much because you already have so much debt. But yeah, it's all going to have to get paid back somehow, some way. We're really taking, again, from our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and future generations to pay for our problems now. Okay, so this is like a big, broad economic question that you don't have to answer today, but I would I would like to know um, when there's a real a genuine radical realignment globally. So I'm thinking here, you know, when na- when national lines get redrawn, when governments rise and fall, when nations, I mean, are just radically transformed. Um. Do their economic systems sometimes reset? Yes, that's the short answer. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to? You see answer? where I'm. You see where maybe my imagination is going here. Well, um, look, and, you know. Yeah. What, what, what can the U.S. government really do if things get realigned? We just say that we're not going to pay the debt, and who's going to foreclose on us? And how? And how? Right. But it have to be a military campaign, exactly. and so and so they defeat us militarily. Great, you got the debt. Here you go. What are they <sighs> going to do with that? They're going to do nothing, the, really. Yeah. It's it's uh in some ways it's a moot point, and in other ways it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's a that's a um. There's another sober uh sober reality <laughs> bum, for another, this Wednesday. Another bummer, Bill. You were Wednesday, like right? Wednesday bright and cheery, Bill. Yeah, <laughs> we do now appreciate look. you very, very much. Um, you do help us uh, see things that are happening that we don't, you know, we don't necessarily just understand at first blush. So, Bill, thank you so much as always for joining us. You guys can that- find Bill English at BibleAndBusiness.com. We'll be right back. So don't agree with me. I know several of you don't agree with me because you text me frequently about how you don't agree with me. So if you don't agree with me, um, how can we learn to talk? We're going to talk with John Inazu about exactly that point. How do we learn to talk with those with whom we disagree? And this isn't really about disagreeing agreeably. This is actually about um, becoming people and then learning how to raise a next generation of people of Christians who interact respectfully with those who have different beliefs while remaining faithful to the gospel. That is a real challenge. How do I remain faithful to the gospel as I engage in an increasingly diverse culture? That conversation up next here on Morning for Carmen. Control freaks are easily frustrated. We can't take control because control is not ours to take. This is Max Locato. The Bible has a better idea. 
Rather than seeking control, relinquish it. Peace is within reach, not for lack of problems, but because of the presence of a sovereign Lord. Rather than rehearse the chaos of the world, rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty, as the Apostle Paul did. From prison he wrote, The things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. In the innermost part of his being, Paul was a man who believed in the steady hand of a good God, protected and preserved by God's love. He lived beneath the shadow of God's wings. Do you? This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, John Inazu. Uh, as an introduction, I'm going to read the first paragraph of a chapter from Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. It's the book we're discussing today. John writes, My day job for most of my adult life has forced me to be a translator. As a lawyer and now as a teacher, I've had to make words and ideas accessible to audiences unfamiliar with them. That challenge is not unique to me. It's true of many professions. It's also true of every one of us in our personal relationships across difference. Each of us is called to the task of translation. And in this personal translation through our lives, we have a God-given opportunity. We are, as Paul wrote, ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians 5.20. John Inazu, Sally Danforth, Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University in St. Louis, teaches criminal law, religion, and Law, various First Amendment courses, and um, one of my favorite conversation partners. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. It's great to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I found it curious that your chapter comes almost at the very center of the book. This is a book of stories of people like yourself um, who are willing to help all of us understand who we are as Christians in the cultural conversations of the day, and just in regular average conversations that we're having with people who are just so different than us. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you nailed the description there that we are, we're trying to make this book a useful resource for everyday interaction and engagement by Christians in the workplace, in the neighborhood, at school, and recognizing that we do live in this deeply divided society, but that we have all of the gospel resources to do so confidently. So the people who um, who joined you and Tim Keller in writing this book, um, they're, they're telling very personal stories uh, about differences that they have with others. And then the demonstration, um, I mean, I was surprised maybe by how many stories of my mom or my dad or my you know, I mean, there there are these stories, right, of how it has been modeled. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, I think this was something we couldn't fully plan, and it just sort of came together with with God's providence. We uh, we we worked really hard to assemble all of the authors together in person in St. Louis as we started off this project, and we had a long dinner the first night where we just it was a very powerful moment. We just shared quite personally and openly about how we were coming into this project, what we wanted to convey. And it became very apparent that there were human stories that connected dots between us in ways we didn't recognize and that we were 
uh, we were wanting and willing to share some of these stories with with the audience for the book. And I think at that moment, it became clear to me that this was was not going to be sort of an ordinary compilation of essays, but there would be the themes that you're drawing out in your question. When we talk about um, our differences and how we live faithfully as Christians in the midst of a culture where many, many people, most people, all people, are different than we are, think differently than we think, um, are there some principles that you can point to and you can say, you know, here's how a Christian can retain their commitment to the gospel and yet leave room in conversation for people who do not share our worldview. Yeah, you know, so um, as we kind of lay out in the book, Tim and I are building off my earlier book, Confident Pluralism, and we're trying to embody and enact the the aspirations of humility, patience, and tolerance that I describe in that book. But more clearly for a distinctively Christian audience, we're trying to show how those ideas and aspirations are, are fully rooted in faith, hope, and love. And to me, that perhaps the biggest contrast for Christians to think through is the contrast or the connection between, between tolerance and love. As a, as a political baseline, tolerance is really hard, but it's also really not that much. I mean, to say that I tolerate you is not saying much about how, how I think of you as a, a human being. But the gospel gives us resources to love people we encounter, not just our, our good friends, but to love our enemies, to love people we don't know well, to love people who are different than us. And that that's not kind of a soft kumbaya love that has no content to it uh, and no truth in it, but it, it's, it's a much more powerful love than that. And so I think the move from tolerance to love as Christians is something that really allows us, if we do this well, to, to lead the way in bridging difference and crossing difficult relationships and and uh, in, in humility and in patience to to show how we can we can be part of, of the solution to restoring the broken social fabric of our country. So I want to read um, a paragraph from the conclusion because I I lifted up at some point in today's show um, I lifted up the reality that we are kind of in this moral moment and when you're in the midst of a moral moment is really not the time to decide what your morals are going to be right we need to we need to have settled <laughs> these things. I mean, my dad, I mean, I, my dad died when I was 15, but I still remember the conversation when I was a very young teenager that, you know, the time to make a decision about who you're going to be is not when the car windows start steaming up, right? That is not the mm-hmm. moment to be making the decisions. We are now, like, culturally in a terribly steamy car, um, and now <laughs> is not the time to be making those decisions. So I want to read this, um, this paragraph, and um, because I think that it is particularly relevant right now when we talk about the decisions we're making together as a people in relationship to this pandemic. We live in a culture that lacks a shared understanding of the common good. Beneath our social, religious, and political disagreements lie different understandings of moral authority, human nature, and even perceptions of reality. And as the past few generations have shown, we will not resolve these differences through pragmatic or rationalistic appeals. What is, quote, pragmatic depends on your understanding of a good life. Um, What is, quote, rational presupposes answers to questions about the nature of truth and of reason. This is really a conversation about worldview. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah. And and even how we kind of understand knowledge, which is in some ways even uh, more comprehensive. 
than worldview. And I think, I mean, so the challenge for Christians, and I'm, I'm glad to, for you to tie it to the current moment, because I do think that what we're all experiencing day in and day out right now is a manifestation of some of these challenges. So what does it mean for Christians who, especially in this country, have for a long time assumed that what they know to be the common good is something that they can can, can tell the rest of the country to follow? Uh, when when that's no longer a political possibility, we still we still proclaim the common good that points toward the redeemed humanity uh, and redeemed uh, creation, and we're still called to do that. But we we might not have the same levers of control and power to do that. And so, what does it mean to adjust to naming the common good without necessarily uh, controlling the common good? And what does it mean to pursue truth and knowledge in a fractured world where a lot of social media and media influences, including some of the ones that we listen to, are not being truthful and are not being uh, charitable and kind. And, and how do we as Christians model a different kind of engagement, not only for what our worldview is, but how we engage that worldview with others? The book is Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. John Inazu and Tim Keller are, I don't know, what I would describe as the editors, because there are lots of authors um, included in uh, in this particular uh, book. John and I are going to return to our conversation in just a moment. Continue my conversation with John Inazu. He is uh, he is a professor of law and religion at Washington, Washington University in St. Louis. He's the author of Confident Pluralism. He and I have talked about that book on occasion here. And today he joins us to talk about Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference, brand new book, um, compilation of stories from artists and authors and thinkers and pastors um, on this question of how do we as Christians— live as people faithful to the gospel in the context of a culture where, you know, we're just going to have a lot of folks with whom we disagree and who openly disagree with us. So what is that? What is a faithful presence in the context of that look like? Um, John, let's actually pivot to that conversation, the conversation about faithful presence. Um, what What is faithful presence and what is it? What do you think it looks like? Yeah, you know, so we, we took the term from a, a book by James Davison Hunter, who's a friend of both Tim and, and me. And the idea is, w- instead of sort of seeking a kind of control and power, or, or alternatively seeking a kind of withdrawal from the world, what does it mean to be in the world, but not of it? To be, to find our vocational and reputational and relational uh, spheres, and to, to live faithfully and confidently in those spheres, uh, but, but but also engage fully in the rest of the resources that God gives us to do that. And, and he gives us biblical scriptural resources, and he also gives us skills and gifts uh, of the world and, and, you know, being good lawyers and doctors and artists and not not trying to do a kind of a, a Christian proxy of good created work, but to do the work in the, the fullest way possible. And so I think that's part of it. And then also, you know, before the break, you, you mentioned the idea of translation that I write about in my chapter. And it means that we're really good at where we are with other people, listening to them and their frames and understandings so that we can effectively communicate with them. And I think too often we're 
we're quick to speak and slow to listen, which is exactly the opposite of the, the counsel we're giving. So even in um, reading sort of the identifying characteristics of what faithful present presence might actually look like for Christians right now in our generation, um, <clears throat> I, I'm almost hesitant to read the first one because of the blowback I'm going to get um, from my listeners. Now, that that tells me something about my own sensitivity to this particular um, calling of Christians right now in the United States of America as evangelicals in an election year. <clears throat> so that's my setup for um, what does faithful presence actually look like? First, Christians should not over-identify with any particular political party or platform. I am going to emphasize the term over-identify in that sentence. Why am I, why am I honing in on the term over-identify? Well, you know, I, I think so political engagement and political participation is, uh, I think, a complicated question. And there are faithful Christians who will come out differently about political parties. And they'll be on, you know, on both sides of the aisle or in, in an independent frame. And there is no kind of pure neutral space to be that I think participation in any way is going to have some kind of compromise and should set us up for some kind of uh, willingness to partner in ways that don't make us comfortable. And I think when we recognize that, we recognize that political parties and political systems are imperfect and in, in, in many ways inherently flawed institutions that we can't not be there. So Christians need to show up in those places and as Democrats, as Republicans, as independents, uh, and, and Christians need to participate in the political process as, as, as part of really an act of neighbor love. But when when party or issues or ideology start to drive what our faith looks like, that's what over-identifying starts to mean. And, and then we start to live out a, a kind of distorted view of the gospel. In the same way that some in some parts of the world we're, we're concerned Christianity sort of incorporates uh, too many forms of other religions and it no longer starts to look like Christianity, the same thing can happen here in the United States when Christianity starts to absorb too much of the Republican Party or too much of other kinds of political influences. So um, to give uh, to give everybody the rest of the list, Christians should approach the community around them with a posture of love and service. Christians should recognize the gospel subverts rival stories and accounts of reality. Christians should reach out to others with humility, patience, and tolerance. And there are um, those uh, those hat tips to um, confident pluralism there uh, as we as we talk about what it looks like to live faithfully as Christians, as gospel-centered people, as gospel-advancing people um, in, a, in a time and in a country where um, pluralism is the reality. Um, we have one listener who just wants us to be sure that we, um, and you and I would, I think, recognize this. This is, so much of this is about motive. When I enter into a conversation with a person with whom I know I disagree, what's my motive? Um, and if mm-hmm. I'm just there to convert them, if I'm just there to lay down the law of God upon them, um, then, then I'm probably not operating out of this humility, patience, and tolerance, faith, hope, and love that we're describing. Oh, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think, uh, you know, this is the difference between uh, especially a person who is, is not a Christian who 
I, I, I feel like apologetics 30 years ago wanted to tell that person, let me tell you the, the propositional story of the gospel. And the first question now from that person is, do you care about me as a person, right? Do you really want to know me as a person and know my story? And if we don't start there, if we don't put a frame around the context for the gospel, it's going to be very hard to think about engaging, uh, uh, particularly in a, in a way that motivates us in our our faith to do so. And I think this is something that my co-author, Tim Keller, gets very, very well. He, In his context in Manhattan, he's been preaching for 30 years in, in a context that requires him first to connect with the people coming in and listening to him uh, who are asking the questions, do you care about me as a person? And and who, who don't bring in a baseline of Sunday school stories uh, and who need to kind of have a, have a much broader perspective before you can start honing in on the specifics of, of your own faith commitments. John, as always, you are um, you are welcome here, uh, and we love talking with you. We appreciate the spirit with which you're approaching these conversations and how you are teaching us and others how to faithfully engage as Christians in the context of, uh, of the culture in which we live. Um, you know, we are—God called us forth for such a time as this, not for another time. And so thank you for the ways in which you um, you prepare us for the conversations of the day. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for your work, too. I appreciate your voice. Well, thank you. You guys can find John at jinazu, I-N-A-Z-U, jinazu.com. Uh, we'll be right back. All right, let's be praying for each other uh, at the midpoint of this week. Um, I have experienced an increasing number of people who are just right on the emotional edge. And I think that when we ask people if we can pray for them, when we, uh, when, when we hear sort of in the background of our conversations or, or we see in the, in the background of, the, uh, of their Zoom calls, right, sort of the mounting chaos at home, for lots and lots of folks, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety. Um, so let's be let's be praying for one another. Let me encourage you again today. Um, you know, use that sort of old-fashioned phone tree uh, strategy that we used to employ back in the days when we all had landlines. No one had cell phones, and you know, and the only way for me to get information out to a group of people was for you know me to Paul, call Paul and Paul would call Neil and Neil would call Justin and Justin would call Kim and Kim would call Carissa and Carissa would call Ted and uh, and Ted would call Mark and and so on and so on and so on. So let's um let's talk let's be talking with one another. Let's be praying for one another um, and let's be reaching out to others uh, who we know are in need. I appreciated the conversation that we had yesterday. Let's just go ahead and assume that we know the needs of others. Let's not wait to be asked. Let's not wait for them to ask. Let's do all the good that we can do today to advance the common good in this generation. You and I are alive for such a time as this. It is not by accident that you are in the world right now um, as God's agent of grace and ambassador of the gospel. So you have an opportunity today to advance the gospel in some way, in some direction, by some means. And so um, I want to hear how that goes. So you can always communicate with me. Send me an email, carmen at myfaithradio.com. Check us out at uh, myfaithradio.com and share your faith in action story. We're collecting those there as well. Why don't you go ahead and gossip, tell a good story on someone else. Have a great day and God bless. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.